and welcome to the second Vartha podcast. Thank you to all the listeners, over a hundred of you who actually listened to our first podcast a few weeks back. We're really encouraged by the positive response and uh, it validates our belief uh, and our effort in bringing this podcast to you and bringing a lot of news stories about India to you. In our second podcast today, we'll take a look at very interesting topics, some of the things that are happening in India right now. We'll briefly talk about the assembly elections which are underway for a set of states and talk about their political implications. Uh, we'll discuss the whole Vijay Malia episode and you know what it really means for the Indian government and for the Indian financial sector. We'll have a very interesting discussion as usual on our chart of the week uh, that comprises uh, some very key elements related to India's development. And then we'll talk about this very interesting experiment in public policy in India, the whole odd even rationalization of vehicles in New Delhi. Um, and, and we'll have a detailed discussion on that. As always, we'll end with one story that caught our eye and do a roundtable around it. We hope you'll enjoy our podcast and uh, you'll, you'll listen to this and, and give us a rating on whichever platform you're listening to it. All right. Uh, so we have the same table as usual here. Uh, gentlemen, if you could just quickly go around introducing yourself in five seconds each. So I'm your narrator, Aftab Khanna. I'm here. And uh, if you could just go quickly around the roundtable. Hey, listeners. Uh, this is Milind. Hey, this is Gaurang. And this is Pawan. All right. Thank you very much. So let's begin with the assembly elections um, in India. And it's 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 summertime. It's uh, temperatures are rising and it's, you know, it's also reflected in in what's happening in the assembly elections. So we've had uh, two big states who are kind of almost more or less done with their polling so far. Assam had uh, two phases of polling, uh, 126 assembly seats. It's it, the polling is finished. West Bengal has had a believe it or not a seven phase polling almost, and uh, most of the phases are over. The last phase of elections goes uh, to the polls on the 5th of May, and then we have the South Indian states of Kerala that goes to polls on the 16th of May, and then Tamil Nadu goes to polls on on the 16th as as well. Let's briefly talk about uh, Assam and, and West Bengal, and then we'll quickly touch upon uh, Tamil Nadu and Kerala as well. There's Pondicherry as well, which uh, it's, it's 30 assembly seats, and, and we're not going to discuss too much in detail about that state. So um, interestingly, Assam, which uh, was a state that the BJP swept in 2014 in the Lok Sabha elections, and I think uh, that's the one state where the government or the BJP itself is looking for really good news uh, to come out when the counting takes place. It's a state that's seen a lot of polarization around communal lines, given the, the conflict between indigenous Assamese population and the migrants that have come from uh, lower lower Bangladesh. And a lot of that has led to um, fissures almost in the electoral landscape. The, the Congress government led by Tarun Gogoi has been in power for the last three terms. And uh, it's probably about time incumbency might catch up with them. There's been a lot of defections in the state Congress as well. Some of their leaders have crossed over to the BJP. Uh, opinion polls are generally not very trustworthy, especially in assembly elections in India. Uh, but the general direction of most of the polls is uh, that the, the BJP should get a comfortable majority. And I think if it doesn't, then that will probably qualify as an upset when the counting takes place. West Bengal's been uh, interesting. Unfortunately, the cycle of violence that you generally associate with every election in West Bengal at the rural level, it's kind of happened this year as well. Uh, that's probably the reason why we've had such a long election spread over a month in West Bengal. 
um, the wind complaints filed from across all sides. Generally, it was always the Trinamool versus the left. This year, the BJP is in there as well. They've been filing complaints and there's been reports coming in. Uh, things to watch out for in this election. Uh, most people believe Mamta Banerjee, although her government has been on the back foot because of the Sarada scam and the flyover collapse, it, political analysts believe she's, she still has her nose in the front and she should ideally come back to power again. Uh, the Congress and the left are facing an existential crisis and it's not a surprise that they've kind of come into an alliance for this election and uh, they're kind of have this understanding and it's almost like a two-front fight except for the fact that there's the BJP in the middle. Now in the 2014 Lok Sabha elections, the whole Narendra Modi wave had an impact in West Bengal as well. The BJP did particularly well in the urban areas and it was felt that Bengal was like another frontier that Modi and Amit Shah combination wanted to open. The enthusiasm has kind of mellowed down over the last few months. I don't think they're they're anticipating uh, it to be like a major breakthrough for the party. And that will probably be an interesting thing to see. How much vote share is the BJP able to gather? How well does it do in the urban areas? Does it make a dent or or not? Um, again, as I said, opinion polls are, are favoring the incumbent Rinamool, but this is West Bengal and things have been very topsy-turvy here and anything can happen. Um, but make no mistake, it will as heated and as contested as the election was on the ground, so will be the the, the verdict when it comes out. And you'll, you'll have a lot of television studio back and forth happening between the Trinamool Congress and, and the Congress. Very quickly, uh, we'll cover maybe uh, Tamil Nadu and, and, uh, and Kerala in a more detailed podcast when voting actually happens. But uh, the Congress is on the back front in Kerala. It's a state that generally swings between uh, one incumbent to the other. So the left front might well get its turn this time and come back into power. The BJP, again, is trying to establish a foothold. Um, its most prominent candidate is cricketer Ashri Shant, who's contesting from Thiruvananthapuram. He's causing a few gaffes as well on the campaign scene. Uh, and then Tamil Nadu is very interesting. There's not a lot of chatter right now about it. Uh, Jailalitha is, uh, is the incumbent with the AID, ADMK. Initial opinion polls do suggest that she has the advantage, but then the DMK and the Congress are back in alliance. And then there's a third alternative, which is the DMDK, the whole Vijay Khan's faction that generally allies itself to one of the two major Dravidian parties. It's independent this time. There's BJP as well. It might not have a big play in there. It'll be interesting to see how uh, how Tamil Nadu shakes out. I think it's advantage Jailalitha, but then you never really know what, what happens. Tamil Nadu is again a state that generally is not very rewarding to its incumbent government. Right, guys, I'm going to open this up. Any thoughts on uh, the polls? Uh, otherwise, then we'll move on to our, our, our next topic. No, Aftab, I think that was a pretty thorough analysis. Uh, uh, there's uh, there's pretty much no room for us to uh, to add any other uh, uh, cool insights. Right, and I hope uh, by the time we get down to our next podcast, the results would have come in. Counting takes place on the 19th of May, and then we'll have much more to talk about. Particularly, I think one angle that we'd like to cover then is the whole national implication of the results. What does it mean for most of the players? Uh, my sense is the Congress has more at stake in these polls. It has more to lose than perhaps the BJP. But it'll be interesting to see how things shake out once the results are in. Does this also highly affect or doesn't at all affect the Rajya Sabha seats? That's a very good question. You know, uh, I think West Bengal and, and Tamil Nadu are very, very critical in that sense. Because just given the fact that Bengal has 294 assembly seats and then Tamil Nadu has 234 assembly seats, you know, typically they send a fairly large degree of contingent uh, to um, to the Rajya Sabha. 
so so it will it will definitely affect it and i think one of the reasons why the whole modi and amit shah combine was looking at bengal was this grand strategy that they had which was to incrementally increase bjp's share in the rajya sabha by capturing more assemblies I'm not sure if that's going to happen but yes i think both for trinamool congress and for the dravidian parties it's very important because this directly impacts their presence in delhi good question all right uh, let's move on to our second topic uh, milind you want to take up mr vijay malya and your chart of the week yeah definitely uh, happy to do that uh, maybe i'll speak about the charts uh, before uh, so real quick uh, for our listeners who have not had a chance to look at the charts uh, every week we do uh, uh, a chart representation of some interesting statistics uh, and try and draw some uh, useful insights out of those uh, if you have not had a chance to check it out please go visit warta.in and uh, you can look at the chart of the week section or even the digest section the weekly digest section uh, so re- recently we did a three chart series on jam so jam j a m is the acronym used by the government of india to refer to and track three important indicators uh, jandhan or bank accounts opened aadhar or ids issued under the national unique identification program and mobile subscribers so we looked at each of these metrics over the last 3 weeks and examined what progress has been made with respect to each of them so here's the bottom line about 214 million jandhan accounts have been opened since the beginning of the program and over 80% of the population now has uh, aadhar id cards and the total number of mobile uh, phone subscribers has surpassed 1 billion as of march uh, 2016 so that's good solid progress all around uh, so next i want to discuss why jam is important um, improving jam numbers by itself you know, especially the j and a numbers the jandhan and aadhar numbers it's not very helpful for indians by itself you know. it's what can be done with uh, the jandhan accounts and aadhar cards uh, which is the more interesting piece so first of all the aadhar card the the government will have a central repository of all all the citizens this is important when it comes to disbursing you know welfare funds to those in need for example drought struck farmers in maharashtra right now uh, this avoids the so called error of inclusion uh, and you know sure a similar system has been in place for decades to disperse uh, discounted essentials to uh, those in need but you know as we know this system has been abused and riddled with fake accounts so aadhar identification is biometric and it's very difficult to falsify and it's pretty straightforward and easy for the average indian citizen to to understand uh now coming to uh, to jandhan uh, so this can be used to directly wire cash uh, to the bank accounts of those in need Now, studies have repeatedly shown that cash is the, you know the most fungible of resources is the best form uh, to disburse welfare support especially when it's distributed to women in the household they tend to use it very responsibly and, and it really adds value to the families so you know with direct cash transfer the leakage from the top to bottom can be stemmed as well and then i don't have to tell our listeners the many virtues of mobile connectivity from basic communication to an internet gateway the benefits are you know, widely known 
and then innovators uh, can come up with several unique solutions designed uh, you know, uh, for the unique needs of the Indian citizens, such as diagnosis over the phone, controlling watering schedules for crops, education apps, you know, you name it. This has the potential to, potential to tremendously improve quality of life for, for millions. So, you know, all, all in all, JAM, JAM is an important trifecta of metrics that the government is tracking and We'll continue to closely watch this and maybe do another series in, in six months or so. So uh, stay tuned for that. It's interesting, Milind, that the, this government is also tracking Aadhaar, which was kind of started or initiated by the previous Congress government. And uh, uh, there were, because I know there were some issues uh, regarding Aadhaar, people saying that, well, there have been a lot of fake accounts and whatnot. But it's, it's, it's good to see that this government has um, considered as a, uh, primary metric yeah absolutely i think uh, i think it, it would be you know foolish to ignore the value of uh, having a central depository i mean there's been some talk about you know, some privacy concerns and so on yeah. but you know at the, at the end of the day you need to know who who are those uh, citizens that need welfare or need funds, and you know this is this is table stakes. Uh, there's no progress. I can't see any progress uh, without the basic identification structure being in place. So I think the government completely appreciates it, uh, and and it's got technocrats who are um, guiding it. You know, Nandan Nilkani, the uh, retired CEO of Infosys, uh, you know, used to lead the the program and has done a fantastic job so i think there is no uh, fortunately you know the government has not taken the partisan uh, approach towards this program and, and continued to invest in it uh, which is very heartening to see yeah i think also the smart thing that they've done is that especially for a scheme like jandhan um, you know i think they've realized the value of tying aadhaar together with something like that you know both from a targeting perspective then but then also from a disbursement perspective because Aadhaar helps you with the identification of who you need to give something to, whereas Jandhan is then your mechanism for transferring uh, support to somebody, you know, through a bank account. So it kind of completes, if I may call it, you know, the it, it kind of captures the entire value chain. And then mobile is kind of another, you know, form of transfer can eventually become more mature uh, as, as Indians, uh, a, a large majority of India graduates from, let's say, basic mobile phones to more smartphones. Absolutely. Yeah, but very interesting. So again, uh, listeners uh, who are listening to this podcast, you know, chart of the week is something that we put together uh, every week. Uh, we we do a data visualization that goes beyond uh, and gives you an additional insight into a topic. So please do go and look at our website, vartha.in, uh, and and look at the chart of the week related to Jam that Milan's put up there, and I'm sure you'll you'll you'll, uh, you'll definitely enjoy taking a look at it. Right, uh, from uh, leakages and subsidies to major leakages in balance sheets of banks, uh, Milan, Mr. Vijay Malya is no longer in India and uh, a lot of banks are left wringing their hands dry. Uh, let's, let's jump over to that topic. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, you know, first off, I want to quickly say this. Uh, you, you'll probably know where I stand uh, with regards to this um, ongoing argument. Yes, the bank should have been more diligent. The Reserve Bank of India Governor Raghuram Rajan has often warned Indian banks about bad loans. And this just just seems like a crisis waiting to happen. So it's high time the banks cleaned up their balance sheets and started being more diligent about corporate lending. Uh, it's also high time the Indian media come up with its own version, uh, or the Indian government, uh, I apologize, come up with its own version of Chapter 11 or bankruptcy law in yeah. the U.S. Yeah. 
So now on to on to Vijay Malia. So I, I read a recent interview uh, you know, in the UK newspaper Financial Times. Uh, it was a pretty comprehensive four-hour-long interview uh, that Mr. Vijay Malia uh, gave to FT, and uh, I thought it was like getting the story from the horse's mouth. So my favorite quote from the interview was, "By taking my passport or arrest, arresting me, they're not getting any money." Now, clearly, this is a man who knows he has all the leverage in the negotiation. So to our listeners who are not familiar with the story, Vijay Malia, after refusing to pay his uh, company's debts um, uh, to, to his debt holders, uh, you know, mostly banks, mostly uh, national banks, left the country and is currently living in London. And the Indian government has revoked his uh, diplomatic passport and asked the UK to ex- extradite him. He's also and, a member of parliament, right? Rajya Sabha just expunged yep. them or expelled them or something like that. Yeah. Yep, that's that's kind of ironic. He's a he's a, he's a lawmaker himself, yeah. um, and now a fugitive from the law. So, uh, you know, he's he's refusing to uh, pay his company's debts. Uh, you know, Malia claims uh, that he's he's in a forced exile state in the UK. In the interview, he says he's willing to pay pay almost uh, six hundred and forty million US dollars of uh, the almost three quarter billion dollar debt or outstanding principal and uh, you know he claims that receiving anything less than a full repay a full payment will make the banks and the government uh, appear weak so there may be some truth to this first of all there is some you know disagreement around how much is owed in the first place and whether or not uh, you know interest should be uh, included uh, interest should be accrued since uh, 2012 um, then secondly, there's the media angle. The media has, you know, time and again become a judicial system unto itself. It has failed to consider the nuance of the situation, you know, and plain cold pragmatism of business, you know, where most debt holders would be delighted to take 85 cents on the dollar of their uh, of yeah. their outstanding, uh, you know, uh, principle. So, you know, there's there's no denying though that he he has now, as the Financial Times puts it, become a test case for how the Indian authorities deal with heavily indebted uh, business tycoons. So, you know, my personal take on this situation, to just quickly summarize this, is the banks, uh, you know, even the State Bank of India, which is leading the consortium of 17 banks that are trying to recover their loans, uh, you know, they're running a business and and that comes with inherent risks. So can you really blame Malia if he points, you know, at the fine print? Just because usually it's the financial institutions at the other end of the bargain. Particularly <laughs> when you consider things like, uh, I think the, the brand, the, the, I think his, his brand was a collateral, right? I mean, uh, some of the banks gave him money with Kingfisher as a brand being valued at like thousands of crores, which when you try to put your head around, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily make sense. And the first question that comes to your mind is which bank? manager was approving something like this right <laughs> exactly and you know you 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 said it really well after you know brand and and goodwill these are things you know that corporations put on their balance sheets but they are so hard to assign a number to you know you yeah. see time and again you know big companies writing off goodwill loss in goodwill yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars and it's it's just you know it's made up it's not money that exists anywhere right. so brand is you know a similar concept and, you know, moreover, if, if the Indian law enforcement and, and legal system is not equipped to deal with corporate debt, de- uh, debt defaults, yeah. how can you hold Malia fully culpable? You know, I'm not defending Malia. He's no saint. 
I don't think the sage words of Taylor Swift, you know, players going to play and it is going to hit, <laughs> apply here. But, you know, come on. The situation is sort of unprecedented. Uh, you know, pass some laws. Strengthen right. financial crime monitoring and law enforcement against willful defaulters. Make corporate loan process you know, more diligent. And create bankruptcy protection to encourage, you know, genuine entrepreneurship and, and genuine risk taking that the economy needs. So don't expect willful defaulters to just voluntarily cough up their obligations. And I know, oh yes, the, give the media some elementary lessons in corporate finance. That for so, sure. Just as we wrap this up, I think I'll, I'll stress that point as well, Milan. I think uh, this, this whole chapter 11 thing and, you know, the ease of starting a business is very important when people look at, oh, how friendly is the business environment? But equally important is the ease of closing a business. And I think uh, th- these are two parameters where every year you have, you know, this, this study that looks at how business friendly India is and these two parameters we don't rank well and it's just because it's so difficult to go through our courts and for lenders to reclaim their money and so if anything good can come out of this episode is you know a, a business friendly government that we have in the center if, if, if a chapter 11 like thing could come into India I think it will it will solve a lot of these issues uh, going forward that was a really good uh, detailed analysis Milan and thank you for reading the four hour long Malia interview on financial <laughs> uh, but but uh, that that was that was a very interesting discussion all right we're going to move to our uh, last agenda topic um, of this podcast a very interesting innovation in public policy in Delhi it's taken place twice now the odd even formula uh, it's you know you you have odd number cars running on one day and even number cars running on the other it's polarized public opinion and these days you know, my whenever I see multiple uh, posts uh, on my Facebook feed in favor or against something, I know the public opinion is polarized. So Gaurang and Pavan have taken a deep dive into the whole odd even public policy and what are its implications. We're going to hand it off to them. Gaurang, do you want to kick it off? Sure. Let's start with what the odd even rule really is. As Aftab mentioned, it's odd number of plates running on odd days and even uh, respectively on the even dates, right? But there's more to it to this rule. And by more to it, I'd say there are exceptions to this rule. So for example, emergency services and transport, uh, public transport are exempt. Women drivers are exempt, believe it or not. And the reason the Delhi government states is uh, so because most moms drive their children to work, so they shouldn't be in this law. There has been criticism for that as well, but let's not talk about that just yet. Two-wheelers are exempt. Sunday is a holiday for this rule. So, uh, you know, overall, it's kind of an experiment that the Delhi government is conducting. And it suits well because like, it's just 15 days. The, the start of this year, Jan, uh, the rules are applied from 1st to the 15th. And now from in April from 15th to 30th. So I think the government is trying to see what are the effects of this rule in different seasons as well. And that's what Mr. Kejival has stated as well. And the reason for that is being that there is some correlation between, you know, the season and the amount of air pollution that has, that has been recorded in Delhi. Uh, so there's also a talk of having a third phase somewhere in June or July. So in the first phase, over about 10,000 chalans were issued by traffic police and the league government also roped in uh, subdivisional magistrates to do this monitoring. For the phase two, which was which just ended yesterday, about 500 retired de- defense personnel were uh, roped in to do some work for the transport department. And even then, about 8,900 vehicles were fined if they you know, violated this rule. So what did the government really try to accomplish here? And uh, 
Mr. Kejriwal says that, you know, he agrees that no in the world is this uh, scheme going to be enforced permanently. It's just not uh, practically possible. Uh, what he does try to accomplish is like try to reduce the spike in the hazardous levels of air pollution that have been recorded in Delhi over uh, the last couple of years. And one of the things that it tries to do with that with is curbing vehicular traffic and, you know, encouraging people to use more public transport and carpooling. Now, is the 15-day trial period good enough? The Delhi government feels that uh, it's optimum because the alternate means of transport, the public transport, isn't that developed. And in that regard, also, uh, uh, in the year, uh, uh, in the in Jan and Feb, Delhi government planned to add 1,000 new buses in Delhi. But uh, as you guys also have also, or as Aftab has mentioned, there has been enough criticism over uh, this rule as well. Apart from the political hullabaloo, there was a PIL filed in Delhi High Court to stop the rule when it was turned down. And it was brought up again in Supreme Court when it was turned down again, stating, well, you know, it's just 15 days. Let, let them uh, see how it goes. But other than that, there have been concerns where people say, well, why not apply this rule to two-wheelers? They could uh, be as much, you know, adding to pollution as uh, four-wheelers. Uh, others saying, well, why, why exempt women? There's no reason to do that. Of course, there's other segment of people which also believe, well, uh, why not? Why just stop to vehicles or four-wheelers? Like, why not ban uh, diesel cars? Uh, recently, the World Health, uh, Health Organization had classified diesel exhaust as a carcinogen, a substance that causes cancer. So, you know, there's been a lot of uh, criticism uh, going around around for this rule. Yeah, actually, that's a good, those are all very good points, Gaurang. Actually, here, I'd like to cite the examples of two other cities where uh, this is done permanently. One is Mexico City and the other uh, one, San Jose, Costa Rica. So one in Mexico City, they started this road uh, space uh, rationing program known as Hoy No Circular as early as 1989. It restricts 20% of its vehicles from streets an entire day of the week. And I read that the program was initially successful but has been ineffective in reducing pollution over the long term. And this was as per a University of Michigan study. Also in San Jose, Costa Rica, they implemented a permanent scheme in 1995 again restricting 20% of all vehicular traffic into the city in order to reduce the country's fuel consumption. That's that's a totally different reason they did it. Uh, but again, this it wasn't very effective at even reducing fuel consumption, but it did reduce some traffic congestion, congestion according to official reports. Now, it's official reports, so the government made the reports. Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% trusting that, but <laughs> anyways... There was also a University of California Davis research that studied the temporary and permanent traffic restrictions of four worldwide cities, which have ridiculous traffic problems. Sao Paulo, Brazil, Bogota, Beijing, and Tianjin in China. Now, that, that study concluded that there was no notable difference in air pollution levels in cases where the restrictions were on a smaller percentage of vehicles, like the 20% that we were talking about or in a small region, as it led to just temporal shifting of driving patterns. People just worked around it. Also, uh, what they did observe is uh, in the odd-even scheme in Beijing, that was a temporary experiment. It did reduce the carbon monoxide and uh, particulate matter, uh, matter levels. 
now kind of orthogonal to this while i was reading about it i found an article that made me giggle which was uh, bjp's tezpur mp uh, mr ram prasad sharma he rode a horse to the parliament as a sign of protest against the odd even rule <laughs> well uh, setting the publicity stunt aside he made a very interesting point which was what about tourists are they are they expected to bring like two vehicles when they arrive in the city like what what are what are they supposed to do uh, so this actually got me thinking about several other things which together back to question uh, will this even work in an indian context and in the indian con- context I, i thought about few possible consequences one is well this the, there are global precedents to this too but uh, the rise of second hand car sales mostly those which don't meet the current emission norms this is already happening according to some media reports there are, there were reports which said uh, which quoted second hand car dealers saying they're having a field day out there in fact uh, the way i look at it this is like probably an unintended consequence where the regulations are actually encouraging people to buy two old cars rather than one new car and most of these old cars are just going to pollute more and double the tra- amount of traffic in the city although only half of it runs on any given day there was a second point which was inequality like so now people who can afford two cars can drive every day whereas those who can afford just one car transporting their family of five cannot drive on half the days it kind of sucks to be uh, labeled that way and a third point is if people cannot take their car how do they get to work school or wherever they need to be public transit right but does everyone feel safe enough to be taking public transit uh, and right and tell, i think yeah right and i think uh, right. it goes goes back to all the criticism that has been uh, around this law but and you are right about the uh, pollution uh, or what is the cause of pollution as well there has been studies even in india uh, the national environmental engineering research institute in 2007 niri it's called did an analysis of air quality data in delhi they looked at uh, you know the composition of particulate particulate matter which is primary cause of air pollution or a constituent of air pollution and they tried to see what is what is the major source of pollution and um, they actually came across lot of sources it's not just vehicular emission the other big contributors are road dust construction diesel generators coal and kerosene combustion and all of this love was study was done in delhi so you know it's not just this that will help reducing or curbing uh, air pollution and so uh, kind of seeing you know whether this uh, policy or rule actually made a difference so i kind of get, got hold of the dpcc.delhi.in delhigovernment.nic.in website which has data or early data basically on uh, various things uh, various places from delhi anand vihar mandir marg punjab bag rk puram and lot of other news articles have quoted this data as well and basically the data shows that slightly less pollution was observed in some parts of delhi during the phase 1 however in the second phase there was no real notable in fa- impact and in fact during the last 5 days concentration of uh, particulate matter increased again there was no real difference in nitrogen dioxide levels uh, which is another uh, major factor in air pollution studies ozone level and uh, you might seem that ozone level kind of you know doesn't play into effect but ground level ozone level if increase is pretty bad it causes smog and uh, that increased too year over year 
so kind of to summarize the rule did not really accomplish bringing down the pollution to the less than hazardous levels that uh, mr kejriwal intended did it actually change the mindsets of general uh, public also remains to the, to be seen like as pawan said said some of the people actually uh, went to buy second cars but did it actually trigger moment time in uh, you know increasing public infrastructure uh, maybe yes but you know if it's just 15 days it's not as bad right that's that's a very good point to kind of wrap this up and i think this was uh, really enriching in terms of the data that you guys looked at the public policy implications that you considered and i think this it will be very useful to somebody who's listening to this because now we can kind of go beyond just the politics of it um you know and kind of look at it from a public policy lens and, and typically every public policy as pavan mentioned has some unintended consequences you know it may or may not meet its objectives and it'll be interesting to see if they come up with a wave 3 or phase 3 of this in delhi and then what what after this you know because if this is just an assessment of does it impact peak pollution you know okay you get some data around it you get a sense of it do you make it more permanent do you do it do this more often do you augment public transport so i think it'll be interesting to see how this space develops in in, um, in delhi but uh, it, it it's it's good to see a public policy being discussed so threadbare in india and and the fact that now we've managed to add more color to it beyond just the politics of it all right we're going to wrap up our content here and go around the table as we wrap up this podcast and talk about one story that caught everybody's eye this week so i'm going to open this up whoever wants to go first very quickly one story about india that caught your eye this week i can go first after this is uh, milan so uh, i want to quickly talk about patanjali ayurved so uh, you know patanjali ayurved is this uh, outfit that has the blessing of baba ramdev the yoga guru and they make all kinds of consumer products and they have seen a meteoric rise of late so uh the goal for the company or the organization is uh, to reach 10000 crore in revenues by 2017 that's huge uh, to put that in context you know hindustan lever the very successful indian arm of the multinational behemoth unilever had two, 2015 revenues of almost 35000 crore rupees so to to you know reach within 30% of that in in a short span of 3 years 4 years that to me is you know, very impressive and and you know, there's something interesting is happening so it shows that organic the organic trend is thriving in india as well um, you know it would be interesting to see how the entrenched players respond and how this story plays out being a strategy consulting professional you know this caught my eye and i thought i'll share it with the group very interesting all right uh pavan you want to go next uh sure yeah so the article that caught my eye was uh, that walmart wants to sell food products in uh, brick and mortar and online stores in india mm-hmm. this was a particular interest to me given the high inflation numbers india has seen in uh, produce and uh, food products right. I-, i still find it hard paying 40 or 50 rupees for a loaf of bread in india i don't know i just can't get over this <laughs> uh, mahangai uh, right so more competition in the space should uh, help control the prices of processed food i think mm-hmm. uh, the trigger for this was government's announcement of the 2016 budget that uh, 100% fdi or uh, foreign direct investment will be allowed in uh, processing processed food retailing industry it was already speculated that international giants like uh, walmart and tesco would be encouraged to encouraged to set up sh- shop 
uh, but it was really good to hear it from uh, the Walmart execs itself. Of course, uh, the FDI rule uh, comes with, it cl with its clauses of sourcing all raw materials from India under the Make in India scheme, which is great. Uh, apart from consumers like us, I think this is going to have a positive effect on uh, the farmer suicide issues that we have discussed in our previous podcast. Walmart is known to own the entire supply chain and sourcing channels. Somewhere, I hope this will bring enough competition in that space to cull out some of the uh, oppressive middlemen and make life easier for the farmers. Yep. Yep. That's a good point. That's a good point. Garang, do you want to go next? Sure. Um... I think uh, Melinda and me have been probably uh, reading similar articles because the one that I caught my eye is similar. So this was uh, basically an article in Hindu by Jacob Koshi. And uh, he mentions the there's been a rise in research uh, uh, in medicines that have been made from plant extracts or homemade spices. Mm -hmm. One of the things that he men mentions is turmeric. And we all know like uh, growing up, we used to uh, use turmeric for a lot of things. And so there's uh, currently a research uh, researcher going, uh, going Rajan Padmanabhan uh, in the Indian Institute of Science. And uh, he feels that, or his research is basically based on turmeric's uh, compound, which actually attributes to its yellow color, being helpful in in killing ma the malarial parasite. Uh, there's other there's other research which we also know uh, gooseberries are some some things which are highly researched for uh, creating new drugs. So yeah, this the article was kind of kind of about how the homemade recipe or homemade uh, uh, or home spices are now being researched and actually actively used in drugs to fight diseases. Okay, very interesting. All right, all right. Um, so I'm going to wrap this up by bringing us back to the political space, guys. This was a week in which uh, new nominated MPs in the Rajya Sabha took their oath. Uh, Mr. Sidhu is back in Parliament. Uh, this time as a Rajya Sabha MP, there were reports that. Uh, he was toying with the idea of becoming Ahmadni Party's chief ministerial candidate for the Punjab elections, but the BJP's managed to keep him in their house. What was most interesting for me was Subramanyam Swami is in Parliament now, and uh, two two things caught my eye. One was there's this article um, or joke going around social media which said that uh, uh, you'll have to print a glossary of all the terms that he uses on Twitter. Uh, so he uses this code language on Twitter that only his followers know about. And so they, somebody will have to print it so that the other parliamentarians can now understand what he's talking about. And Subramanian Swami, given the person that he is, the first day that he took oath, the first thing that came out of his mouth was the allegation about Sonia Gandhi in the Augusta Westland chopper case. And that's kind of brought the Rajya Sabha to a standstill. So it'll be interesting to see how his presence in the Rajya Sabha leads or impacts Congress-BJP relations and the government's whole agenda of passing legislations, you know, given how combative he is and the fact that he wants to go after so many people from the previous government. Um, same with same with Sidhu. I I hope yeah. the uh, IPL continues after in Rajya Sabha. So one of my friends actually, and there was this piece that I read that Sidhu apparently maybe I, I think he was not there for uh, taking the oath because he was busy with his IPL commitments. And uh, <laughs> so somebody was joking, you see Sidhu more on the IPL and the Kapil Sharma show than actually on Parliament. But but we'll see how much appearance he actually makes there. What's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a good point. We'll cover that some other day on some other podcast. Uh, let's not get into a 
case where we, we have some case slapped against us for <laughs> parliament. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, we're going to wrap this podcast up. This was a really good discussion. We've covered a lot of ground today. Um, and once again, to our listeners, uh, you can you can access us on SoundCloud, on iTunes. Please do leave us a comment or feedback. We really value it. Uh, to review content from India on a daily basis, please do go to our website, varta.in. That's V-A-R-T-A-A.in. You can see news stories from the best of sources from India every day. You can read our weekly digest that captures um, a summary of key news stories in India over the past week. And then obviously you can access the fantastic data visualization charts that Milan puts together every week as well. Thank you for listening and we will be back with you very soon in a few weeks. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Bye.